Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The main event, the president of the United States about to see whether his bet on North Korea will pay off. Kim Jong-un's desire to end his country's economic stagnation. Well, will it prevail over the, the dictator's fear of relinquishing his nuclear threat? Joining us now from Singapore is Tolu Olaranipa, Bloomberg Washington correspondent. Tolu, walk me through the main event and what is about to happen over the next 24 hours. Yeah, you you just mentioned it. We're less than 24 hours out from the biggest meeting of President Trump's life. Also the biggest meeting so far of uh, Kim Jong-un's life. They're going to be meeting for the first time, the first meeting between the U.S. president and the North Korean leader. And the goal from the U.S. side is to get uh, Kim Jong-un to commit to giving up his nuclear weapons program. Now, there has not been a public statement from Kim Jong-un that he is willing to give up this program that his family has developed over several decades. So there will be, we will be watching very closely to see whether or not there is any type of indication that Kim Jong-un has actually turned the corner and decided that he no longer needs this nuclear program and he's willing to engage with the U.S come out of the isolation that the U.S. has placed North Korea in, into with various sanctions and give up his nuclear program. So President Trump will try to get that commitment from him. We're told that they're going to have a handshake starting at 9 a.m. here, Singapore time, followed by a bilateral meeting, followed bilateral meeting just one-on-one, -on -one, just the two of them with translator, translators, followed yeah. by a larger meeting with their staff as well. Tolu, as far as negotiations go, um, you need to have an agreement on what the terms actually mean. You need to define the terms. And both sides use this term, denuclearization of the peninsula. What does that mean to the president and what does that mean to the North Korean leader? And are they the same things? They are definitely not the same things. They are talking past each other, and there have been a lot of low-level meetings trying to get those definitions closer to together from the U.S. side. Denuclearization means getting rid of the entire nuclear program, uh, declaring the entire nuclear program, having inspectors verify that that program is being dismantled, and having uh, North Korea get rid of every bit of their nuclear weapons program. Now, the North Koreans have a different idea. They believe that it means that the U.S. should uh, reduce its own uh, presence in the region, maybe getting rid of its troops on the uh, south, in South Korea, on the Korean Peninsula, uh, getting rid of the nuclear umbrella, the protection that the U.S. provides to South Korea and Japan uh, by having a presence in the region. And it also means getting rid of the hostile nature of U.S. sanctions uh, and, and, and U.S. diplomatic isolation of North Korea. So they see denuclearization in a much different light than the U.S., and they have not yet been able to bring those two definitions in line just yet. Tolu, given how the G7 went, there's some debate over whether the pressure is increased on the President of the United States or decreased on the President of the United States as he goes to Singapore. Does the President go to Singapore stronger or weaker after that G7? Well, he definitely does not have as much of the support of our, our allies that he would have had if he had had a productive G7 and, and been able to use that as a launching pad for this meeting in Singapore. Now he's still fighting and still having to answer questions and still tweeting about what happened in Canada and about the G7. So there is a certain level of distraction. And there's this idea that uh, the president has trouble getting along with allies. He has trouble 
sticking to a deal and whether or not that is something that's weighing yeah. on the mind of Kim Jong-un after uh, President Trump pulled out of the communique is something that uh, remains to be seen. But obviously, the president hasn't shown uh, a strong knack for staying in deals. He's been much better at breaking deals than putting deals together, and that's yeah. going to make it much harder for him to, to, to reach a deal here in Singapore. Tolu Oloranipa joining us from Singapore. Thank you very much for your time, sir. Joining us around a table in New York, Tom Keane popping into the studio. Tom, good morning. Good morning. Eventful weekend, to say the least. Yeah, to say the least. Charles Cantor coming yeah. in as well. New Berman, senior portfolio manager. Charles, I always ask myself on Monday mornings, what's new? What's changed? Has anything truly changed after that weekend? Other than you're a little bit more rested, probably not. You think I'm rested, Charles? That's nice of you. That's interesting, though, isn't it? For the market, just zero reaction. The media and all the experts going crazy on foreign relations, and maybe they should be, but for the market and investors, it's same old. We've seen this before. I think the market's fighting this debate around um, fundamentals and, and the influence that, that higher interest rates will have on valuation. And, and, and that's going to be a tug of war that's going to last well beyond um, the global events of this week, next week, and, and, and the rest of the year. And I'd say as it relates to earnings and um, valuations, um, you should ex- anticipate less multiple expansion, but but earn- but equity return should follow earnings growth, which which I think will be in the in in the mid high single digits. Do you think any of what we've seen over the last weekend or so damages CEO confidence, business confidence? No, not yet. I I mean I think you always have to pay attention to to the vicissitudes of of the global economy mm-hmm. because. Most businesses today drive a lot of their their growth from 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 outside the U.S. and and any confidence shock will be a negative to investment and consumer spending. But if anything, uh, the debate that's going to take place in in, yeah. in Singapore should be a positive for confidence because it may imply a, a safer global economy and world. What are you doing with cash now? I mean, it's it, in the changed interest rate environment. All of a sudden, cash is a different thing, isn't it? Well, you've got to be careful about cash, and it depends on with whom you refer to. I, I think at, at the individual level, I think the individuals always misprice the optionality mm. that comes with cash. Cash gives you the opportunity to invest when others can't, and it gives you the opportunity to sleep well at night. As it relates to to the corporate side, the the key question is: as 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 surplus as cash flows have expanded in 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 magnitudes that they couldn't imagine after much mm-hmm. lower corporate taxes. The question there is: will the corporate CEO be a productive allocator of their cash? Um, and we encouraging our companies to 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 term out their debt, i.e., move from variable structures to fixed structures, and we encourage them to 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 take risk and to to be innovators and to invest um, at rates of return that are you know candidly 900 basis points higher than their cost of cash. Um, um, and if they can do that well, shelter value creation well, will continue. Is that in mid cap? I mean, you you made a lot of headlines with Amazon, Whole Foods, but forget about the glory stuff. Where are you really making it? Mid cap, small cap? Look, I think for us, our bread and brother, mm-hmm. bread and butter is the medium sized companies that 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 face um, enormous opportunities to to continue to grow and 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 haven't faced the headwinds of of the law of large numbers. Um, and when we were just in Denver meeting two of our, our medium sized companies. Um, and I was very encouraged by by what they seen from mm-hmm. uh, in terms of end demand. The one was an industrial company, the other was a was a database uh, measurement company that provides data yeah. into the financial services. The consumer is really strong right now, and 
is spending. And and on the industrial side, um, of course, right. it'll, it'll depend on what your products and services are, but demand's really strong right now, and inventory's on a very good position. Are you following a World Cup team? I mean, it's this week. It is this week. I would typically follow... In no particular order, South Africa and the U.S. Um, You're doing really good with so, that. So, Why don't you pick up Italy and call it a hat trick? We, we were discussing Italy earlier. So well, we were. So it'll be a little bit more challenging this year, but 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 no doubt I'll I'll have at least one eye on 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 the events as as pick- they. As they get the team, Charles. Well, if you force me into a box, it'll it'll likely end up being England. Yeah. Um. You know, we all go back to the Commonwealth in, in one way or another. <laughs> Excuse me. I read the New York Times insert thing this weekend. Cover, cover. John Farrell, would you explain why Torres and Panama? Are going to the World Cup? Yeah, and Italy's not. Well, it's the way they're separated into the different sort of um, groupings. So you have UEFA, which is where the bulk of the European they do nations like regional, play in, precisely, and then you qualify a certain number of teams from individual regions. Okay. The real question is why is Panama going and um, and not the United States? Um, how did the United States not qualify for this World Cup because they have the easiest route to get into okay. the World Cup? Well, I am to, so tuned to, to harass teams. you this week. It's going to be great. Well, the good um, news for us is it. I think in the next round of the World Cup, there are more teams, so hopefully yeah. ours qualify. <laughs> Charles Cantor, great to catch up with you. For our listeners worldwide, you're listening to Bloomberg Surveillance. We are thrilled to do what we do on surveillance, which is to go out and find the best voices we can find on a topic. And you do that with Charles Armstrong. To say he is professor of history at Columbia barely describes his contribution to Pacific Rim thinking and particularly the peninsula of Korea. He comes out of the Jonathan Spence Combine at Yale University, LSE. His doctorate is out of Chicago. Professor Armstrong, we are thrilled to have you with us today. What would Jonathan Spence say about the making of modern Korea? Synthesize your lifelong work to this historic moment for the peninsula of Korea. Well, Korea has always been uh, a place that has uh, fiercely defended its independence. Uh, uh, it uh, lived in the shadow of China for thousands of years, but was never absorbed into the Chinese Empire. It was a colony of Japan for 35 years, uh, and it is now divided into two, in the north and south. So there's this long, a long history of unity and independence uh, in Korea, and I think a lot of Koreans, including in the south, are really looking forward to the summit meeting between Trump and Kim Jong-un, not because they like Kim Jong-un necessarily, but because they see this as a historic turning point leading toward uh, eventually mm-hmm. the reunification of their country. Secretary Pompeo, I thought, was organized and forceful in his brief this morning to the media, 5,000 media uh, in Singapore. If you were to, <laughs> excuse me, if you were to advise the Secretary of State on the unpredictability or the nuances of the Supreme Leader how would you advise Secretary of State Pompeo? Well, what Pompeo said yesterday in Singapore uh, is a little bit different from what Trump has been saying. It does seem to be quite different from what Kim Jong-un uh, has been uh, indicating he expects out of, the, out of the summit. So I would say to keep an open mind, stick to your principles, you, you know, keep the American goals in mind, but, but 
be be nuanced about how you get there. So what I, what I mean by that is Pompeo said, U.S. sanctions will remain in place until there's a complete and verifiable irreversible denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Uh, but uh, that's going to be a tough sell to the North Koreans. And Trump himself has said yeah. that uh, this is the beginning of a process, not an end in itself. So, uh, you know, the, the North Koreans are tough negotiators, and you've got to go in um, understanding your goals, uh, but being able to uh, work toward them in a creative way. Charles, what is the uh, the minimum condition for success at this meeting? I think that what we, the minimum is a declaration of principles. Both sides can agree that we want complete denuclearization uh, and outlining a process how to get there, uh, opening up North Korea to inspections, um, the, uh, starting uh, the, the process of leading mm-hmm. toward uh, relief of sanctions, but I don't think we can expect a, a huge uh, and and mm. uh, a clear commitment uh, or a clear achievement. I think this has, has to be, and I agree with Trump on this, the beginning of a process. Professor Armstrong, how does South Korea fit into these meetings? I mean, it's Trump and Kim, I get that. But South mm-hmm. Korea has a unique place at the table, whether or not they're at the table. What is it? They've been very important, uh, particularly the president of South Korea, Moon Jae-in, and really getting this this uh, process going. Uh, they've facilitated uh, between North Korea and the U.S. They've uh, reached out to North Korea to start a dialogue, going back to the, uh, the, the uh, Winter Olympics in South Korea. Uh, and they have a huge amount at stake, obviously. They don't want a war on their peninsula. Uh, I think that's the first uh, condition for them. They want to lead us back, back from the uh, edge of war that we seem to be in just six months ago. Uh, and they want to, to move the, the Korean Peninsula toward a, a, a situation of, of, of stable peace. Uh, and they want to, the, the improvement in the North. Uh, you know, they, they have to live with, with North Korea right on their doorstep, and they want the, the regime to be less hostile and uh, also for its people to... Uh, be better off. Mm-hmm. So I think economic interaction with North Korea is also very important. Within this is President Xi, the New York Times, making a strong point this morning that Chinese will not be there. I don't buy it for a minute. The Chinese must be there in representation of North Korea. How does that relationship fit in the next 24 hours? China has made it clear to Kim Jong-un, meeting him twice. Yes. She had two meetings with Kim in less than a month after refusing to meet him for for uh, six years since he came to power. So clearly China wants its position represented, even if it's not physically there at the meeting. China is by far North Korea's most important economic partner, uh, takes about 80% of its foreign trade, supplies it with oil and food. Uh, and in exchange, they want a secure border. They don't want the U.S. right on their doorstep. Uh, they want a reliable buffer. Uh, uh, on their northeastern boundary, which is very sensitive. Uh, and they also want uh, a, a, a North Korea that is less unpredictable uh, and more affluent. They really want nor- North Korea to go down their path of economic reform, and they see that that, that can't mm-hmm. happen until there's an improved relations with the United States and we see some relief from sanctions. Professor Armstrong, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate the time today. Uh, professor of History at Columbia and truly one of the nation's experts on uh, uh, Korea. Greatly, greatly appreciate that. With us now, 
Uh, a woman who survived the winters of Bates College, that in itself is a triumph. Laura Rame joins us uh, with FS Investments as we look to the Fed, as we look to where we are. Laura, I want you to explain an absolutely killer chart you have going back 25 years, which is the 10-year yield up and then rolling over. And then in 1999, the 10-year yield up and rolling over. And sort of in 2005-06 into the crisis, up and rolling over. And then you've got a question mark, and then things change. Where are we with a 10-year yield right now versus other Fed cycles? So, um, you know, first off, we ha- I had my 25-year college reunion this weekend. So apologize. My voice is <clears throat> still recovering from all the, the fun. You, were down, with the Was- you were down with the Washington Capitals doing the bender <laughs> that they were in. Well, that's good. Bates College is a good place to have a 25th so- anniversary. Exactly. So it's still going. Um, so, th- you know, thanks, Tom, for highlighting that chart, because one of the, to me, one of the most important um, pieces of misinformation I hear from especially fixed income investors is that as the Fed raises rates, as short term rates renormalize, that the this Fed fund rate hike cycle is going to be somehow this rising tide that lifts all ships. And long-term rates are going to go up, too. And I could not disagree more. Um, I look at the history of Fed cycles, and what you traditionally see is longer-term rates rising somewhat at a, at a slower pace in the beginning of the cycle. And then that usually does not last. It typically plateaus, and even that trend even reverses. And so long-term rates have gone up. A little bit since we started raising rates. We've had some volatility in the long end recently, but you know, to me, the the sell off when we got over 308 and the 10 year, yeah. the uh, the rally that brought yields back down to you know 280s, that made all the sense in the world because we are in an environment when the Fed raises rates where we just should not expect the long end to also be on autopilot and rise as well. So, Lara, the intuitive way that the curve behaves at this point of the tightening cycle is that we get some flatness, that you get a a bear flatter, which means the sell-off, of course, comes mm-hmm. at the front end more predominantly. The argument against this, Lara, and it comes from J.P. Morgan Asset Management and Bob Michael, is that this time's a little bit different because you're also getting balance sheet unwind and you're getting the reversal of QE. And the reverse effects will be the return of term premium and ultimately what that could mean is a shift to a steeper curve. What do you say back to that, Lara? So, you know, I think the big uncertainty about that comes to me from the European Central Bank and the announcement that they're possibly going to make this week. All of the uh, deleveraging that we're seeing in the Fed's balance sheet, to me, has already been priced in. That's baked in the cake already. So I don't see that in and of itself pushing long-term rates uh, significantly, really, at all, um, unless they would, for some reason, accelerate, and, and nobody really expects that. The ECB is a much uh, bigger question mark, and you know, at some point, they are going to hit an inflection where they're no longer adding to their balance sheet. You know, I think the first rate move is going to be the first start of this not going to be on the balance sheet side uh, that they begin tightening policy but um, you know their timing the fact that they have only a single mandate and inflation data aren't exactly being cooperative in the EU in the EU uh, to me that is one of the biggest question marks for the bond market this year I mean within that is is the marker you know we were talking with drew Mattis earlier with an optimistic tone that leads to higher rates and his single point 
marker, I, I guess, is three and a quarter percent. Give us some precision here, Laura. I mean, I mean, do we get the do we go through the three oh eight level you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I think that's entirely possible because this Fed rate hike cycle is so different. If you think about, to me, the fact that, you know, we can yeah. see rates creep higher for the first half of the cycle, and you look out, even at the Fed zone projections, this cycle still has a long way to go. So you could absolutely see uh, 325 on the 10-year. You could even see a little bit more. But compared to where we have been historically, it's still so low, and, you know, from where the chair that I sit in, the people mm. I speak to, they're always looking for yield. They're looking for investments. And, um, you know, that's a message that I just carry through because people forget. They oh. don't understand. They don't get that dynamic. Well, Laura, thank <laughs> you so much. Laura, thank you so much uh, with FS Investments. A really a smart conversation there, folks, on rate. And again, you know, if, if you read your Fabozzi, there's... I'm going to call it four factors that go into what the curve does and what the dynamics are. And uh, CFA exams are passed and failed on that idea. We've been trying to advance the conversation over the last number of weeks on our international relations uh, we did that earlier with a Korean expert from Columbia University and now joining us forever associated with the Fletcher School of Tufts and with Princeton Robert Hormatz. He's the former Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment, uh, working with President Obama and Bob Hormatz, of course, for years, a good supporter of what we've done here at Bloomberg on the Economy and Bloomberg Surveillance. Ambassador, we are thrilled to have you with us for this uh, half hour. You know Graham Allison at Harvard who speaks of the tension between China and the United States. Where will that tension be if Mr. Trump has a successful Korean summit? Well, I think a successful Korean summit uh, probably will be a relief in terms of the relationship between the two countries because the U.S. has been pushing China to be more helpful to the cause of getting the North Koreans to de- denuclearize, and the Chinese have been upping their sanctions uh, under U.S. pressure. But also the Chinese do not want instability in Northeast Asia. And if the summit were to fail, the chances of instability would probably increase, or at least the perception would increase that the United States and North Korea are going to get back into the sort of uh, shouting match mm-hmm. that they had just before the, 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 the current thaw began to emerge. The way this works, Bob, is somebody gives up something, and usually the greater power unloads money, aid, whatever you want to call it, on a country. And clearly, we and others can unload aid on an impoverished North Korea. But what will they give up? Well, that's, of course, the big question, Tom, and that is, The administration has made it very clear, and indeed members of the Congress from both parties have made it clear that the goal of the United States should be complete denuclearization with a very, very robust uh, surveillance um, through various quarters to make sure that they have not only uh, rid themselves of nuclear material, but also the capability of creating new 
nuclear material and the ability to deliver uh, these sorts of, of weapons, uh, which is essentially not just ICBMs, but more limited uh, shorter-range ballistic yeah. missiles that could deliver nuclear weapons. So the administration and the Congress seem to be united on something very strong and, and very permanent with a lot of inspections to make sure that that is occurring. Yeah. In return, of course, the North is going to want security assurances. They're going to want a substantial amount of assistance, as you say, because the economy is in, in very bad shape. And they're going to want an end to the, uh, to the Korean War and most likely some kind of American pullback of its true presence um, in, in the South and, um, and, and in the region. You know, Bob, one thing that I'm struck with is there seems to be so much at stake from a diplomatic standpoint, and we hear we see all these headlines that are really significant. Uh, and you're uniquely positioned to answer a question of why markets don't seem to care. Uh, you are formerly the vice chair of Goldman Sachs. You know the relationship between these sort of big, high-level negotiations and underlying business. What will it take for investors, for corporations to care? Well, that's a great question, and I've uh, been surprised uh, all along that with respect to North Korea and indeed events surrounding Iran, that there is not more uh, attention um, or concern in the markets Iran because, of course, it's near uh, a very rich oil-producing area and also does have a lot of uh, conventional weapons to be just very, dis- very disruptive if it wanted to be, um, and to some extent it already is in certain parts of the region. But in North Korea... Uh, I think the feeling is the markets really are focusing on a lot of other things for the moment, so North Korea doesn't um, occupy a great part of their attention. But the other is they really don't know how things are going to go, and they um, perhaps have not fully digested the seriousness of these two countries if things really went sour getting into some kind of confrontation. Perhaps they don't believe it will ever happen, and therefore they're discounting it. And even if this thing normalizes and there's a better set of relations in Northeast Asia, they probably don't see this as very advantageous economically. So on the margin, while they're focused on it, they don't think, A, the worst calamity will occur, so they don't think that will happen. And even if a really good outcome occurs, it probably, at least in the near term, won't have much of an economic impact. So given your experience as an executive at the top of a major bank, I'm wondering, do you think that the uncertainty that some of these high-level discussions have injected into the global economy has already been priced in to some degree? In other words, do you think that companies have actually uh, ratcheted back their expansion plans or not invested in their plants as a result of this? With respect to Korea, you mean? With respect to Korea and also just sort of the volatile backdrop of international relations. Well, I do think the one thing that is going to trouble companies going forward is what happened in Quebec over the weekend. And that is the companies had been hoping, at least, and and perhaps some degree feeling that there would not be be a a trade war. Mm -hmm. Um, What happened in Quebec... uh, has made a lot of people very concerned that the U.S. and its major Western trading partners and major Western allies are really on the verge of something that could be far more disruptive to international trade, international finance, and and international markets. I think that is a big concern. If it can't be pulled back, that's an issue because the, the, 
the G7 was designed to to reduce tensions on the economic side and solve problems mm-hmm. uh, among the major economies and to underpin our security and political relations. If this institution goes sour, these are the countries that agree with the United States most on most issues. If their tensions across the Atlantic and Pacific of a deep trade nature and mm-hmm. on our investment as well, I think markets are going to see, well, maybe this trade war that we thought could be averted by meeting such as those in, in Quebec, could now be unleashed in an even more uh, toxic way. What a joy to have with us Robert Hormatz, Ambassador Hormatz, of course, the former Undersecretary of State for President Obama, but far more an author thinking about the linkage of our foreign policy into our fiscal economics, his important book, The Price of Liberty, of a few years ago. And in it, Bob, maybe getting us to Quebec, Hard and inescapable facts. The hard and inescapable facts is the American diplomacy industry has to move on from Quebec. What will Secretary of State Pompeo do after what we saw this weekend? Well, he's got a big job ahead of him. I was, as you know, the the Sherpa or the planner and participated in the first uh, several summits. I've been to 12 in a, over the course of my career in government. And in Rambouillet, 1975, the first of these was designed during a period of great economic difficulty for the West after the major oil crisis of 1973. Mm-hmm. Inflation was rampant. There was a lot of division. And the idea was you pull these countries together, the major countries of the Western world, and you give them a sense of a common purpose, which is to work together to overcome economic problems. Those were, as I mentioned, very difficult at the time, and also as a way of underpinning political and security ties. What happened at Quebec was that this was the most divisive summit that in all the time I've been working on these, the most divisive summit I have seen by far. It's unprecedented that one country would refuse to sign the communique. That has never happened, to my knowledge. Uh, But also the tone was so divisive. So what was meant to be uh, coordinating common solutions to economic problems and underpinning political and security relations is now an acrimonious, turned into an acrimonious forum in Quebec. Now, the question is, going down the road, how do you pull this together? You need strong alliances. The U.S. is a great power, not just because it's great internally, but because it had powerful friends and allies. You need that in, to have, exert influence in the world today. So Secretary Pompeo has got to begin to rebuild the right. trust in the, these alliances but, for both economic okay. and political and security reasons. But Ambassador Harmatz, your charm over the years has been your uncanny ability to take the wonkdom of foreign policy and link it to our domestic realities. The president, the fact is, has a resonance with a large body of Americans who support him. Does he have the backing of a fair amount of Americans when he is this brusque with our allies? Do you get the sense that he has touched a residence with some part of the American people? Unfortunately, I think there are a number of people who are uh, of the view that globalization has disrupted their lives and their communities and threatens their jobs. And if the president takes these very tough lines and is very pugnacious about Mm -hmm. pressing other countries 
to do what he wants or making statements like he won't trade with them if they don't, which is what he tweeted today. Um, that, to me, is something that while Americans may like the rhetoric and find the toughness quite appealing, and certainly there is xenophobia and there's an anti-foreign feeling in certain quarters in this country, over a period of time, when people come to realize that that has a very direct effect on their pocketbooks, on their 401ks, um, I think they will probably take a somewhat different view. Although, admittedly, um, there is a strong political view that Trump's toughness is a good thing. And I, I think uh, not the majority of Americans feel that way, but a, a certain portion do and a certain strong portion of his base. The big question that you've touched on, I think, is, mm -hmm. is this just a temporary phenomenon, a Trump phenomenon, or does this, what happened in Quebec, oh. signal a sustained <clears throat> weakening of cooperation among the Western community right. on a wide range of issues going even beyond Trump? Is it, is it possible to pull that back uh, to what we tried to do in the 70s and 80s and 90s? Seven American presidents have regarded these summits as a good thing to reduce tensions. Now we have those tensions, right? and it's going to be a lot harder to pull them back. And Pompeo yeah. is going to have to do this because he needs these allies, and we need strong trading partners. If we get into a trade war, a lot of American companies, a lot of American jobs that depend on exports, and a lot yeah. of American consumers that depend on imported goods are going to be very adversely affected. So I, the, what's good headlines today may not be good and certainly won't be good for America tomorrow. You know, I come in, Bob, in the morning and I write the opening script for television. And on the back end of it today, I, you know, playing off of Navarro's comments, I said, there is a special place in hell for the Montreal Canadiens. Check that for Prime Minister Trudeau. The kind of rhetoric that we heard from the professor of economics from UKL Irvine, or the kind of rhetoric we hear from my good friend Lawrence Kudlow, I know that's not within the Hormat's dialogue or discourse. Is that a permanent damage to this president, and is it a permanent damage to this nation? Well, I don't know how permanent it is, but I, I, I think that it does. As I was mentioning a moment ago, there are a certain number of people who feel that it is time the United States took a stronger position, and they think somehow they equate tough rhetoric um, and acrimonious rhetoric and somewhat bullying rhetoric with a, a strong position. And I just want to repeat what, what some Americans think is good for this country today and what some Americans think is appealing rhetorically yeah. and what some Americans think is Amer a way of America standing up to the rest of the world. Maybe that sounds good to some Americans today, but th there, there is a strong reason why these institutions and patterns of cooperation were built up it was, it was in part, in large part, because it served America's interests on trade, on investment, and well, on growth. And I think that, that the, the appeal of language today to some people may turn out to be very unappealing when they realize how bad it is for the American economy, uh, how bad it is for jobs, and how bad it is for their, for their, for their 401k. You know, not that, you know, I'm trying to figure out what percentage of the audience will know who Dean Acheson is or, you know, others we could talk about. Right. I impress everyone, but it's almost like we've lost our sense of history. You've specialized yes. in honoring our history. We have a president who's clearly ahistorical. There's no question, whatever anybody's politics, and in, in believing that, 
Are we basically losing our yes. understanding of our diplomatic history? Whether yes, it's, we are, Tom. Well, we it, are exactly. You put your finger on it. Most people don't remember the history, and 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 there's some that would just assume not pay much attention to it anyway. And by so doing, they're yeah. missing the whole point as to why these institutions and why these alliances and why these patterns of economic cooperation were created in the first place after World War II. And in the case of the G7 in 1975, they were created because presidents of Republican and Democratic presidents, and this was created under a Republican president, I remind you, Gerald Ford, and supported by President Reagan and many other conservative Republicans as well as Democrats, they all understood that this was important to the American national interest. And to make America great after World War II, people realized we need to have strong alliances and strong economic partnerships. If those deteriorate, it, it over time weakens America's influence in the world and will weaken our economy because we need the trade and we need the investment. And it's particularly relevant today as the president mm-hmm. goes into these meetings with the, uh, the, the party secretary of, of North Korea um, on, on a major issue. All American presidents in the past have concluded that when you go into a meeting with your adversary, you want to have a strong alliance behind you. You want to have solidarity among the Western countries to back you up, to be there for you. And this was very badly shattered, at least for the moment, in Quebec. Now the president, and you went back to Pompeo, now we have to make especially sure that when he goes in that summit, he has a very close relationship and is in line with the thinking of Japan and South Korea, our two allies in the region, and they're in line with him. So at least we now, for the next immediate step, Mm -hmm. if we can't pull the overall relationship together among the G7, he's got to be especially strong in making sure that the alliances with with Japan and South Korea are very strong in this this moment. We're going to leave it there. Robert Hormitz, generous of you to be with us for this 30 minutes. Thank you so much, Robert Hormitz. Uh, with Kissinger Associates and, of course, the former Undersecretary of State for Economic Growth. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.